Our text this morning is found in Galatians chapter 1, and it's verses 11 to 24. It says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia. Later, I returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that I am, what I am writing you is no lie. Then I went to Syria and Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report, the man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praised God because of me. This is God's word. You may be seated. Lord God, as we come before you this morning, we pray for Pastor Kyle that you would guide his words, that your Holy Spirit would fill this room. And we just thank you for the mighty works you do through those that are unexpected. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning again, friends. It's so good, good to see you here on this beautiful Sunday. I hear it's supposed to be a lovely day today, and I hope that we can enjoy the sunshine um, with whoever we might be able to experience it with. I, um, I'm so glad that we're, we're able to open up God's Word together and enjoy this really amazing letter that is God's gift to us, to His people, and to the church. I'm so glad um, to see some some familiar faces back with us again as um, we start to um, see some of our regulations sort of loosened. It's good to see you April and March. I hope that John as well too. And God bless you. And um, But yeah, so that's exciting. And won't it be great when we were able to, to eat together again too and enjoy Marge's Coney Island hot dog sauce. You're more to us than that sauce, Marge. <laughs> but it is delicious. <laughs> so we open this, this chapter in Galatians chapter 1, and we begin to read, and we ask a question, for me at least, this is the question that comes to my mind. How, how do we know that Christianity, our faith, isn't just sort of another yummy treat in the buffet of all the self-help options out there? That it's just another maybe potentially good idea that can help us to live a, maybe a happy life, right? Maybe the result of a few teachers or spiritual gurus over the centuries just kind of logically working through what works, what doesn't, and making us a little bit happier with our lives. We just read last week, if you remember, that this is not how the Bible estimates its own importance in 
value. We, we read last week that to preach anything besides Jesus really just culminates in a curse of God. It's to remain, to remain under God's curse. So obviously the Bible isn't saying, hey, try this, and we'll see how it works for you. The claims of Jesus are much more absolute than this. But how can we trust them? How do we know that I could say anything right now, you could say anything? How do we know that Jesus indeed is the way, the truth, and the life? And that to reject Christ, to not believe in Christ, is to remain, like Jesus said in John chapter 3, under condemnation. Now Paul, I think, in writing the Galatians, anticipates that there would be some critics. He was getting critiqued. That's why he's writing this letter. People are asking questions like, who does Paul think he is? What makes him the author and finisher of, of faith and life and how all this works? So people had sort of crept into this church in this, this region called Galatia and were suggesting that Paul was just wrong. He was, he was suggesting a new or perhaps just incomplete way to life. So this section of scripture, I think, is, is part of Paul's response to that critique that these people were offering. And, and by the way, our hearts offer our, their own critiques, don't they? We have our own questions and doubts. So the way that Paul addresses this issue, I think, can help us with our own questions <clears throat> about who Jesus is and whether or not his gospel is indeed real. So I want to know three things today, and then we'll go home, okay? Um, gospel critics, gospel origins, and gospel change. That's what I see sort of being the progressive, the, the, the progression of, of Paul's logic in this passage. Gospel critics, gospel origins, and gospel change. So let's talk about this. We're going to recall in verse 7, if you, if you remember, if you can try to think back to some of the verses that we've already read, it said in verse 7, evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Jesus Christ. So <clears throat> we will always have to deal with critics. Isn't that true? We can turn on the TV and we can see a number of critics. We can go to college, university, and know that the, the critics of Christianity abound. But the greater trouble, I think, isn't so much the, the critic that's out there, but the critic that's in here. Because... If we're really, I think, just honest with ourselves, we share those critiques. We share those doubts and concerns at times, and even those questions, and we don't always have good ones to answer them. We might see some sort of like faceless naysayer mocking Christianity, casting it down or critiquing it, but when we behold really in that, that mirror, we see the reflection of our own face. We can be that critic. It's, my point. So Paul is addressing, I think, some questions, not all of them, we have a lot of questions about Christianity, but some of the questions that might have been coming up at the time with this church, and maybe it will be helpful for you to hear some of these. The first claim, I think, that was trying to be made, that's implied in the text, is that the gospel was Paul's invention. So these critiques that were, were coming from men, these ones that were perverting the gospel according to Paul, we're suggesting that this is just Paul's invention. It's the product of his own reasoning and reflection. And who is Paul? That we should just follow him blindly. But Paul speaks back to us about this potential critique about his gospel. He reminds the reader 
that he was hostile towards Christians and wanted to destroy the faith. It says in verse 13, For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God, and I tried to destroy it. So this, is, this wasn't sort of like an open thinker trying to figure out, is this true, is it not? Exploring, gradually developing, and based on his reflection, something that, that he eventually would call the gospel. This was not a product of Paul's spiritual evolution. It was the exact opposite of this, according to Paul. It was a direct revelation from Jesus himself, who had appeared to him, who wanted nothing to do with Jesus. And this we read about in Acts chapter 9. I believe you'll see this on the screen. It says this, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. And as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he asks, who are you, Lord? And he heard a voice say, I am Jesus, the one that you are persecuting. The gospel was not something Paul wanted to be true. Right? Like, he wasn't hoping against hope that Jesus was alive and that maybe this whole Christian thing will work for me in the end. He had murdered Stephen and he was on his way to murder more. So this was not Paul's invention. This was not the product of an open heart um, and, in, and someone in exploration of the possibility that Christianity might be true. This was an enemy of Jesus. And I need to remind us all, I think, whether we realize this or not, before, if you've come to faith in Jesus, we might not have felt in our heart that we were hostile towards Jesus, but the message that we believe contradicted his. So in that sense, we were. The gospel was not something we wanted to be true either before we came to faith in Jesus. Because, friends, in our fallenness, our hearts want to be free from the law of God, not bound to it. Right? We want to do whatever we want. And if we do feel a violation of conscience or guilt for having failed, we want to save ourselves so that we can get the glory. Or we want some you know, beautiful woman or some amazing job to, to prove us and save us. You see, the gospel is not something we want to be true. We want to be our own self-styled kings and saviors. Until we heard those words, like Paul heard, I am Jesus, not you. Jesus means Savior, right? I am Savior, Saul. And we were blinded as with a bright light, and we couldn't deny anymore that Christ indeed was our Lord and Savior, not us. Because the, go the gospel wasn't Paul's invention, it can be trusted. Because it's a direct revelation of Jesus, who is God in the flesh, spoken to us, we can trust it that it wasn't just a good idea that someone had a few thousand years ago. The second claim that no doubt would have come up was that the, the gospel um, maybe perhaps wasn't Paul's invention, but it was the invention of man, some other men, the apostles perhaps. Maybe Paul didn't invent it, but perhaps they did. In verses 16 through 17, we are reminded that Paul had never met or talked with any of them. Right? My immediate response was not to consult with any human being we read. I didn't go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles. Three years passed, 
after his revelation of Christ, before he even spoke with any of them. So he wasn't locked in some room, like with his eyes forced open, watching some kind of like gospel presentation that Peter was force feeding him so he would eventually believe in it. You know, they broke him. That's not what happened. This was not the invention of Paul, and it was not the invention of the apostles. The gospel is the direct revelation of Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. And because the gospel was not our idea, man's idea, or Paul's idea, we can trust it. It's the creator's idea. And we can conclude this, this sort, short segment of our sermon this morning by just making this further observ observation that Paul's gospel and the apostles was the same and they had never even spoken to each other. He didn't read some kind of gospel track written by Peter, mailed to his house, hung on his doorknob. Oh, right? Even though they had never met or spoke, it was exactly the same because the Lord Jesus Christ had revealed it to them. They didn't need to speak, right? Christ, who is the light of life and the revelation of the salvation that he provides, had revealed it to them both. So in our text, you might have noticed that Peter, James, and the churches, they were all praising God that Paul had come to believe the gospel. Paul's gospel that he received through a direct encounter with the risen Christ was the same gospel that they had preached, so they rejoiced. Right? In other words, it checked out. These supernatural proofs that the gospel of Jesus Christ saves without Paul ever having heard it, came to him from the lips of the risen Jesus. All of these claims reveal to us that the gospel's message is true, that we can trust it, because it doesn't come from man, it comes from God. No, that just answers a simple one question, I hope. I know that there are a lot more, but let that, let that bring us some encouragement. How Paul received the gospel through a direct revelation of Jesus also, I want to make this claim, okay? How Paul received the gospel through a direct revelation of Jesus Christ also shows us what the gospel is. So in other words, he received this gospel through a direct revelation of Jesus. It wasn't his invention. And because he received it like this, we can learn a little bit about what the gospel is. If salvation is not the invention of man, if it comes by the revelation of Jesus Christ directly to our hearts, it then is a work that he does and not a work that we do. You see? In other words, we don't figure out through much study and rigorous work how to be right with God, how to, make, how to fix this world that we live in. It is revealed to us by the sovereign grace of Jesus Christ. If we can only know the message of the gospel through Jesus' revelation, that means we can only be saved through Jesus. Okay? So this leads us from gospel proof to gospel origins. That's the next note that we can <clears throat> appreciate here. Paul reminded us that he was pretty bad. Do you see that part? <laughs> so, in this Gospel Origins, Paul starts going over a little bit of history about his life. 
and he reminds us that he was pretty bad. But you, did you notice that in the same breath, he was also reminding us that he was actually pretty good too? What the heck is going on? I was super bad, but I was also pr way better than you, right? In other words, he told us he set out to murder Christians. That's pretty bad, Paul. But it also said that he was zealous to keep the law of Moses. I don't know how he sort of justified the command not to murder, <laughs> but he somehow did that. He did some jumping jacks in his mind, and he said that he was zealous to keep the law of Moses. In verse 14, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. What he's talking about here is actually Paul was part of this Jewish um, sect of scholars called the Pharisees. And Pharisees were brilliant. Pharisees were the academics. Pharisees knew the Old Testament law. They knew the law of Moses. And they, they dedicated their lives, not only to just knowing it, but to living it out. And what happened with this group of people is they started thinking that they were earning God's favor by their obedience to the law. And they also started thinking that they were better than other people. Right? So this is Pope Paul. He was saying, I was Pope Paul. He was zealous for righteousness, but he was not right with God. How is, what? How can you be zealous for righteousness, but not be right with God? In all of our efforts to be so. We want to be right with God. We're working to be right with God, but we're not. How is this possible? The some people, remember we talked about the perverting the gospel? The some people Paul mentioned earlier, perverting the gospel and telling the church essentially what they were telling them was to return, go back to the legal system, the law of Moses. Yeah, Jesus is good. He resurrected from the dead, but we still need to be circumcised. We still need to do the sacrifices. We, need to, we still need to celebrate holy days so that we can be right with God. But the gospel of Christ was clear. Peter reinforced it in Acts chapter 15. Listen to what Peter said. Why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. So here is a Jew, Peter, reminding the, the apostolic circle and the Christian church at the time that they are not saved through works of the law. They said, been there, done that. We tried that. That was a yoke we couldn't bear, and it crushed us. It's death to us. Consider the conversion of the 15th century reformer, Martin Luther. You read about him, um, his, his testimony, and he says these words. I, in, I had indeed been captivate, captivated with a single word in Romans chapter 1. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. I hated that word, he says, the righteousness of God, with which God is righteous and punishes the unrighteous sinner. He knew clearly what this meant. He didn't skip over it as we might tend to do in our Western minds. He says, Though I have lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. 
I could not believe that he was placated by my good works. I did not love. I hated the righteous, the righteous God who punishes sinners. And I was angry with him. Very honest, isn't he? Nevertheless, I, desiring to know what it is that the gospel wanted of me, by the mercy of God, I gave heed to the context of those words, the righteousness of God in the gospel. I gave heed to the context of those words. He who through faith is righteous shall live. There I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely faith. So in other words, what he's saying here is, yes, God's standard is righteousness, it's holiness, but he does not expect us to become righteous again on our own efforts it is a gift by grace through faith. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates, and I extolled my sweetest word with a love as great as the hatred with which I had before I hated. Isn't that great? Friends, before Paul was converted, he was just like Luther. He was a rule keeper. You know that, that Martin Luther used to whip his own back, trying to pay for his own sins. And he'd wake up, passed out in a pool of his own blood and still sense that it just didn't work. Because there was another whip that hit another back and it's only upon his stripes are we healed. Amen? Jesus revealed the truth of grace supernaturally to Paul. Put down the whip, friend. Because you're saved by grace through faith. You are forgiven as a free gift of God. You know what this means, just practically? It means that the gospel contradicts religion just as much as it contradicts irreligion. Isn't that true? No one, says Dr. Keller, is so good that they don't need the grace of the gospel, nor so bad that they can't receive the grace of the gospel. See? So Paul was very moral, but likewise, he was quite immoral. And if we're just honest, isn't that just true of all of us? We're all pretty good and pretty bad at the same time. <laughs> we're fallen in a desperate need of God's salvation in his life. So that we can hear, too, those sweet words that Paul heard. Saul, I am Jesus. I am he. So this leads us from our observations about gospel critics to gospel origins and finally to gospel change. God's plan and purpose was set in place before Paul was even born. Did you see that incredible statement there? And friends, should you know him by faith? God knew you before you were born, too. Paul was set apart from birth to have Jesus revealed to him and to be commissioned by him for his service. It was part of God's plan before he was a twinkle in his mother's eye to know Christ. The grace of God had shaped all of the events of his life to lead him to change. The change that, that God through Christ would bring him. It says in verse 15, but when God who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace was pleased 
to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him amongst the Gentiles. The one who used to persecute the church is now preaching Christ. Mm. You know what this means in these verses here? That whether, whether we're aware of it or not, whether we're conscious of it or not, that before we came to know Jesus, if you know Jesus by grace through faith, before we came to know him, it means that we had resisted him, rebelled against him, and we had aimed to save ourselves. That was our program prior. We might not have been consciously aware that we were doing that, but we were all trying to sort of discover ourselves and prove ourselves without Jesus the Savior, right? We had other saviors. But God was, before we were born, overruling all of it. All of our self-help, all of our supposed saviors that we thought would rescue us, all of our fake kings and phony gods and all these efforts and all the ways in which we rebelled against God. God was over... If, if God knew me before I was in my mother's womb, if he set me apart before all this, it means that God was had predetermined to overrule all that stuff. Shaping us, preparing us, using the, the world's rebellion and even our own to prepare us to meet Christ. That means that our lives are not accidents. That's what I'm trying to say. That nothing in our life is an accident. We who have been gifted faith and life in Jesus, we've been given sort of like a set of glasses. And when we put on those glasses, we tend to be able to look now at the past events of our lives and see how God used those things to shape us, form us, and direct us to know him and love him. How many people got those glasses on today? I see some people with pretty thick glasses, but I don't know that those are the ones I'm talking about. This sort of reminds me, um, I've been reading the Lord of the Rings trilogy lately, so, so bear with me over the next few months if I constantly... <laughs> use them as, um, use those books as illustrations. But there was this one scene where these dark riders are chasing Frodo. Uh, I don't know if you guys have ever seen the movies, but there's these dark riders and they're terrifying and they're faceless. No one can see their face. Right? So there's this one scene though where they're just about to just destroy Frodo and company and Frodo slips on the ring of power. And what happens in this scene is it says that Frodo, Frodo can see everything. He actually sees their faces, and they're white. He sees the anger and all of this, right? And then he gets stabbed, right? And that's, you know, to be continued. You guys can await my next illustration. But so this is, <laughs> our salvation, it's sort of like a reverse ring, right? We put, when we become saved, we can now look, look at the events of our lives and actually see them for what they really were. We can actually see God's hand in those events of our lives, directing us and leading us to know Jesus. How many people would have come to trust in Jesus Christ if it had not been for your Catholic upbringing? You say, well, that's maybe in a negative way for you, right? Because maybe you, in your mind you think, well, I was taught wrong and I learned all those wrong things. Yeah, but maybe it was through the wrong things that you came to know what was right. You see? How many, how many people know that maybe, maybe had not you experienced as a young child a, a divorce with mom and dad and the pain that that brought? Maybe you wouldn't have come to know who is the real father, the better one. You see, God is in it, working through all of it, all that tragedy and pain 
to lead us to know Jesus Christ. And friends, if you know Jesus Christ, you wear those glasses now, don't you? You see it all now. Because he was pleased to do so. I would have never known life, the life that Jesus gives, if it were not for the many deaths that I have suffered in my life. Isn't that true? And why did God so determine to set us apart to know and serve him? Verse 15, these very simple words, because he was pleased to do so. Why did God save us? Because he was pleased to do so. It pleased him to do it. His rescue was a favor to us. It was undeserved, and this has always been the case. You say, well, not in the Old Testament. Yes, sir. Uh-huh. Deuteronomy chapter 7. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you. In other words, let me, let me summarize. He loves us because he loves us. He doesn't love us because we're beautiful. He doesn't love us because we're more numerous, smarter, more accomplished. He loves us because he is loved and he has decided to love us. Isn't that good news? Can I get an amen? Come on. Is that the love that you know tonight? A love that originates not because of your performance or because of your charm, but because he loves you? You see, friends, the reason I put this under this section, this is a gospel that changes, is because that's what changes us. He loves us because he loves us, and that changes everything for us. And the first thing that it changes about us is we become his servants. Under the gospel of Jesus Christ, when, when, we when we recognize that he loves us because he loves us, and not because of our performance, we begin to be sort of the bullhorns of his love to the world around us. Paul begins to preach the good news to the Gentiles. And word spreads all over the ancient Near East. Word reaches all these different places in the churches. You remember we read this? That this man who once was hostile to the church is now preaching Christ. So God changes us in that we become sort of delighted with all that he's done for us that we can't even keep our mouth shut about it. How many people have ever met a teenager in love? Right? Have you been one? Remember that like 700 years ago when you were a teenager in love? Did, did, did everyone know? They all knew, right? Everyone knew you were. You couldn't stop talking about them. Where is Don? Where is, right, where is Barbara? Where are they? Well, who, where do you think they are? They're with, the, right? They're with their boyfriend, their girlfriend. We can't stop talking about them. Oh, you know what she said today? Oh, she was so beautiful. Oh, did you see what she was wearing? Right? Would you just be quiet already about that? We all know she exists. She's all right. She's not that great. Right? Like, something happens to us. When we, when we come to know the love of Christ, we speak of him. Right? We talk about him. That's what it means to preach the good news. It's not to browbeat people. It's to introduce them to the love that you know, that was unmerited, the Savior that is yours. This means that the gospel isn't simply therapeutic, but it calls, it calls us to action, right? 
that we're not just sort of, sort of supposed to sit on our faith and keep it to ourselves. We're supposed to call, it, the gospel calls us to action. The, the second way that it changes us, something that we can note in the way that it, the gospel changed, changed Paul, was <clears throat> that we see Paul growing in his love for Jesus both in solitude and fellowship. I don't know if you noticed this or not. But, but when Jesus appeared to Paul, what did he do? He got alone for three years. <laughs> he didn't hang out with all these Christians or apostles. He didn't go to Bible school. He got into his prayer closet. So Paul didn't just grow there then. After this time of solitude and being with Christ, he went to Jerusalem. He consulted with Peter and the churches, right? So in other words, we can learn something about what the gospel does to us. We grow in the gospel, in our relationship with God in solitude, in prayer, in meditation on scripture, in communion with him, right? But we also do it in communion with his people. It's both. The balance of the Christian life in the gospel is that we know growth, we know a burgeoning faith and love for him, when we meditate on his word in prayer and solitude, but also with his people in public. It's both. We need both. We can't sacrifice one for the other. Some people tend to be hermits. I don't need the church, and that's just kind of like, maybe I'll, I'll pop in every now and then. Jesus is everywhere, and I'm just going to kind of be on my own. Some people tend to be hermits. And other people, I, I would say probably maybe a little bit more people, tend to be like, they need people around them. Right? They, want, they want to share their faith. With people, but there's no privacy of their faith. So when their faith sort of comes out, it's always in a group, but it's never alone. You see, what, what the gospel calls us to is both. We grow in our faith when we know Jesus on our knees in our closets and on our knees in the church. You see, with God's people. So the gospel changes us like this. Through his word, both privately and publicly with his people. Third, I like this one. I hope you do too. The gospel transforms us from man-pleasing, people-pleasing, to God-pleasing. I didn't read this verse today, but in verse 10, if you recall, Paul says, Am I trying to win the approval of man or of God? See, in all of this testimony, in all of this sharing of the gospel, in all of this work that Paul was doing, all of his desire to know Jesus that had revealed himself better, right? He says, am I, am I doing this to please you or to please God? It's a rhetorical question, but we know the answer to it, right? I'm doing this to please God. Am I trying to win the approval of man or of God? And what, a, what an important question that we need to ask ourselves every single day. When I, go, when I get up and I go to work, when I go for a jog, right, when I exercise, when I put in an extra 10 hours in, in my company, am I trying to please man or am I trying to please God? See, friends, when we're trying to please man, and man can be ourselves too, right? Or it can be our boss, it can be somebody, it can be anybody. When we're trying to please man, it's heavy, it's a burden, isn't it? But when we're trying to please God, I, I, you, know, you, you can be in a situation in life where you're working 20 hours a week trying to please man and it's hell. But you could be working 60 hours a week under the safety and love of God. You're doing it for him and his glory. And it feels like a minute went by. And you have peace in your heart. Isn't that true? 
Because what matters is God's verdict on our lives, not man's. The gospel changes us in that it reminds us that what matters most is God's approval and not anyone else's. And what this means practically is that you cannot be a servant of Jesus and a people pleaser at the same time. The Bible calls it the fear of man. The fear of man is a snare, it says. The fear of man is to hold man in awe. We look at them in awe. We, we are so impressed by them. We elevate their importance. We crave their approval. Oh, and we are desperately afraid of their rejection. Right? So it's when you give man or woman or someone the po power over your heart. And what happens when you do this is that when we're criticized by them, it often feels as if we're being criticized by God himself. We're crushed. But the gospel changes us because it destroys all that. It reminds us that when we trust in Christ, God approves of us because of the works of Jesus that he did for us, not our own. Isn't that great news? And, when, and when, we, when we know that, and when we believe that, the Father's verdict comes to our ears. And you know what it says? It's just like it says to his son. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Now imagine, let's just give you this illustration. It's not a Lord of the Rings one, so here we go. Imagine um, a father watching his son play baseball. Okay? If that son, as he's behind the plate, and he is not confident in the father's love, in other words, if he's got a difficult, angry father that only wants him to hit home runs, and he's going to pay and suffer if he doesn't, right? He's going to aim, who, who is he going to hit that home run for? Himself. He, don't, he doesn't want to come under just the, the, the angry arm of his difficult father. Is that true? And if he hits that home run, he's going to get dad's love, his applause, his celebration. He might get an ice cream cone. So essentially, under that sort of kind of like, I need to, my performance is what pleases dad, my performance is now for me, right? Now, now let's turn that around. Let's turn this illustration around. Suppose now this son has a father that loves him no matter what that knows that his father adores that son, right, and looks at him with kindness. You see, now he's going to get behind that plate, and he's going to try to hit that home run, not for himself, but for his dad. Isn't that true? Because he wants to honor him. He wants to honor the dad that he knows loves him already. And that's the difference between religion and the gospel. Mm -hmm. Friends, we have a God in Christ that loves us already, so we can swing away for his glory and not for ourselves, not to prove us, not to save us, not to earn his love. We have it already. Amen? Amen. Now, I want to ask some questions for you. You can take these home and do some homework, okay? I think they're, I think they're up there. Did you put them up there, Mike? Okay, here's some questions. You can write these down, snap a picture of the TV. I want you to think about these things, meditate on them. Um, throughout the day today. Do you ever find yourself trying to earn credit or prove yourself? If so, how? Get real. Get specific. Right? Um, maybe, maybe you find yourself really like 
one of the one of the things that for me is helpful to think about when I think about this question is what makes me sweat the most? Is it a test, like an academic test? Is it a business meeting when when it's this person is present? You know, the business meeting I'm fine, I'm always fine, but when this guy walks in, I am sweating bucket, buckets. What makes me nervous? Is it, a, it maybe it's athletics, right? Think about it. What, what, where do you find yourself trying to earn credit or prove yourself? The second question is, how does the gospel free you from this? Think through that, right? Um, what ways are you tempted to fear man? I know some of, some of these may have some overlap and might be related, but how are you tempted to fear man? We saw, we saw Paul um, sharing Christ with people, right, the Gentiles. Who has God put in your life to share Christ to? So I'd like you to think about these things. We need to, we need to remember that these aren't just words that I'm telling you, right? Oh, that's nice, and we'll go home and forget it and then, you know, put on Stranger Things or something and see what happens at the end. Friends, we want the Word of God to transform us into completely, we want it to change us, the good news of Jesus. I want you to get behind home plate with me and start swinging because our God has saved us and loved us, right? Okay, we're going to strike out a million times, but every now and then we're going to connect and we're going to hit a whopper. Right? I want to serve Jesus with you all. We need to get over these hurts and these habits and these hang-ups. And we need to believe the gospel. We need to let it set in and sink into our hearts so that we can really serve him well and effectively. Amen? Mm-hmm. Isn't that true? Yes. I hope that you will with me. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much, Lord, for this beautiful morning, this spring morning. God, would you help us to remember that the gospel is true. That though that there are sometimes questions in our own hearts and a million and one critiques, God, that you have revealed yourself, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the saving message through your Son. <clears throat> and God, we pray, Lord, that, that it would originate in our hearts, that you would open our eyes and save us by your grace and change us in your love. God, I pray this morning, if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, would you come to faith in Jesus Christ right now? Would you cry out to God in repentant faith. God, I'm a sinner. Save me. I've been trying to save myself. I've been trying to prove myself to so many other people. God, I trust that the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is what makes me right with you and what gives me your applause. Oh, friend, if that's you, I want to celebrate with you. Would you come and share your testimony with me? Talk to me about the faith that God is birthing in your heart. And God, for the rest of us, I pray, Lord, that we would rehearse the gospel, that we would remember it every day, and that we would proclaim it to the ends of the earth. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.